<laughs> Thanks for asking me. Um, uh, yeah, this is Will. I am a human in recovery. Um, and I try not to drink or be a dick every day of my life, which I thought was uh, good that uh, Megan put that in the in the note to me about what the, the Tasnua um, story time meeting is, is all about. Um, it really is a good, uh, it, it could be really just my entire uh, recovery mantra, because uh, God knows I spent many years as a dick. Um, yeah, human recovery. And I, I, I claim to be a grateful member of AA because I truly am. Um, that's where I found recovery. But uh, my recovery story is uh, my sobriety story. My, my story in general is kind of, uh, has taken a, a zigzag, uh, a zigzag road. Uh, I spent uh, 22 years as a high functioning active alcoholic between the ages of 15 to 37. And then I spent 14 years in change as a really miserable dry drunk, um, not really knowing what a dry drunk was. Uh, but somehow I got away with both, um, you know, the active alcoholism and, the, uh, and those dry drunk years, just by the skin of my teeth though, truly. Um, I'm, uh, I'm Canadian, born in Toronto, and um, was raised by uh, very loving parents, born in the early 60s, you know, a time it was a much more innocent kind of a time. I, um, I'm the oldest of three, and uh, my sister's only a year younger, I guess, uh, in the spirit of this meeting, we are Irish twins, as we call it, in the Catholic Church, 13 months apart. Um, and uh, my brother's four plus years younger. Uh, we, we grew up in a suburb of Toronto, uh, very, very, you know, normal life, except, well, and my mom was a teacher and dad was uh, a former teacher who was in business with his father at that point, family packaging, family uh, machinery packaging business. Uh, and they were active in, in our lives. They really were, especially my mom, uh, who'd be involved in, you know, getting us to and from all of our extracurricular activities. We took, we didn't have a lot though. We were, I grew up in like a, a part of the suburb of Toronto where you, your house was attached to another house. It was a semi-detached house. So, you know, you could kind of hear what was going on next door. There was about 900 square feet for five people in one bathroom. Um, so, you know, but I, I didn't know, I didn't know that we didn't really have much money at that age, not when, not in my young, very young years. So I would describe it as lower middle class only because I didn't feel impoverished by any means. Um, we, uh, we did take a vacation every year. We, you know, we went to the cottage, mom, mom and dad would rent a cottage. And I remember those years very, 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 uh clearly in fact my very first cottage year i remember it was the year of the moon landing and uh, i was six um and dad took the time to wake me up and um and i was the only one awake with him to watch that moonlight and then moon landing and we still talk about that day because we we're the only ones there watching it and one of those early father-son moments that really resonates with you 
you know, to me, that was a clear sign that I had someone in my life that really gave a shit, a care, um, and wanted to spend time with me, which meant a, a ton, you know. Um, I played hockey and baseball like good Canadian boys. And uh, I was also an avid public speaker. I uh, went into a lot of competitions for public speaking um, and was actually quite successful at that. And I was, I was, I was, a, I, I was bright. I mean, I did well in school. And I guess to the outsider, you know, looking at our family, it looked very, you know, really all Brady Bunch asked, no, but not that we were a, you know, a conjoined family with, you know, with step uh, brothers and sisters, but it really looked good on the outside. Um, inside though, um, dad, I was the son, the nephew and the grandson on both sides of alcoholics, active, high functioning alcoholics. Of course, you don't know that when you're six or seven, you know, you're, you're kind of oblivious to that. But I, uh, I knew dad, I started to see odd things with my father at a young age. Um, I was raised Roman Catholic, again, in Irish, something the Irish would really uh, understand. I was raised, I went to parochial school my whole life. Well, not college, but certainly grade school and high school, you know, and, um, you know, if any of you are familiar with the Roman Catholic faith, you know, I've, I've pretty much got all the sacraments except priesthood and death. Uh, I've taken care of all the others. And uh, at, at seven years of age, you go into preparation for the sacrament of reconciliation and the Eucharist. And my dad had a rate. I didn't know this when he was when I was seven, but dad was raised in a very, very religious household by my and, and an only child didn't have anywhere to go to to ask questions about what was going on in his life, but it was perversely religious. You know, my grandmother wanted him to be a priest and, uh, you know, didn't want him seeing any girls as a, as a young man or, you know, even, I mean, when, when he started dating my mother, his fellow teachers called the nun who was the principal of the school to try and break them up. I mean, that's how insane my dad's mom was. But unfortunately, he was nurtured in such a way that by the time I was seven years of age, and I'm taking the Eucharist for the first time, anyone who knows the Catholic faith, dad said to me, sat me down at seven, I never forget at the kitchen table and said, you know, okay, Billy, I was Billy then, going forward, once you've received the sacrament, missing mass is a mortal sin. Now, I knew what that meant. Um, that was a heavy. You know, it's bad enough being born with original sin, you know, but then having, you know, being on the razor's edge of mortal sin, uh, that's, that's fucking, that's crazy. Now, I don't think my dad, well, I know for a fact, my dad of 89 years of age now, I'm very blessed that he's still with us. My mom passed this year, unfortunately, but um, I know my dad would never do that to his seven-year-old if he had a great-grandchild. He's a he's an evolved Catholic by then, but back then that's what you know he felt he needed to tell me, and that combined with a lot of anxieties that uh, that happened in the, as a young boy. For example, that same summer I saw the moon landing, I almost drowned in a very very big lake, 
and mom missed it. Uh, mom was on the beach, but she missed it. And uh, some strange man pulled me out and, um, and you know, got me, got me going. And I, that scared the shit out of me from water. I didn't go in the water for another four or five years. And even then it was just, you know, touch and go. I, I, uh, I was a bedwetter for many years. Uh, I had, you know, insecurities around that, you know, you know, when you're a boy and boys are, it's summertime and you're pitching tents in their backyards. This is the sixties and early seventies and they're pitching tents and they want to have camp outs and, you know, sleepovers. And well, well I was scared to shit, uh, shitless of doing that. Cause you know, God knows what I, what I do, you know, as a anxious bedwetter. Remember one time I did, take the I uh, took the nerve of doing it and I came out of the tent in the morning and up on the porch in front of me was the younger sisters including my own 13 months my junior of all of us who were in the tent and my younger sister goes hey Billy did you wet the tent oh my god but I, I wanted to crawl under a fucking rock anyway these little things I was a skinny kid really tiny smart I got started to get bullied I started to get bullied at a young age, like 10, 11, those years where you're, you're just coming into your own, you're prepubescent. You know, you, you know when they're starting to have those spin the bottle parties, people are, boys are starting to grow, boys and girls start separating at that age. You know, these all play together and then at about somewhere in that age, you know, the, 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 the cliques start and you know, boys are talking like, yeah, you jerk off. I know you. I didn't know what the hell that meant. I didn't have any older brother. I didn't have, I, I didn't have the confidence to ask anybody what those prepubescent inquiry type questions meant. Um, I was just nervous and scared. And as I got bullied, I had to start planning routes home. I remember that distinctively. Like, so I didn't meet certain kids along the way. So you know, these anxieties and and then <laughs> threat of mortal sin, you know, these things are underlying things. I had no idea until years, years later, of course, cut to me in my 50s doing an inventory that I even had any of this stuff playing and playing any part in my emotional maturity. No idea. You know, you're just a kid dealing. Um, the other thing, Here's the other great secret that dad, well, it wasn't a secret, just was. Dad was OCD years before we know what obsessive compulsive disorder was. This was a guy who couldn't leave the house. We'd be in the car for church and dad had the door and he'd be opening the door, opening the door, opening and closing, 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 open, open. He'd go to the mailbox where the, he'd actually put an electrical outlet to run the lawnmower, which is smart, but he'd be going on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off couldn't leave the house without all these checks and balances, checking his pockets. And the other thing he couldn't do is he couldn't finish things. You know, try watching a guy with OCD trim a Christmas tree or pack a trunk. Man, we'd never get to the cottage unless I jumped in at 11 years of age to finish the packing. And that tree would never have been trimmed in the end of the day if I hadn't gotten, you know, I'll take it from here, dad. But dad, you know, I remember getting my sex talk when I was about 11 or 12 with nuts and bolts. And like, he sat me down and he was actually trying to use the, you know, <laughs> the tools in the toolbox to tell me about the birds and the bees. And that was an interesting experience. But watching dad try to do things created an impatience in me about this man that I, or about 
getting things done because I, I was watching somebody struggle so badly to get anything done. And I became this hyper doer, hyper overcompensating, impatient to a fault low. Um, you know, my dad could go into a hardware store and not be able to get out of that aisle for, we lost him in a Canadian tire in Canada for four hours one day, you know, just trying to pick nuts and bolts. Um, so these are some of the things that happened as a kid. And I, I, think, I think it made me scared. It made me nervous in a way that was unhealthy, but didn't realize just how it was going to manifest, you know? And now you're, you're getting into the ages of 13, 14, and 15. And I remember at 15 years of age, I got invited. I was very lucky to go to Vancouver for the first trip away on my own to see my cousins who had moved out there. Uh, about five years before that, my only cousins, I only have one set. And I'd never drank before uh, to any degree because I wasn't going to many parties. And my cousin, Ed, uh, who's my age, uh, we were, we were, we were going to go to a party. He had a girlfriend already. I was really immature about all these things. And we were going to go to this party that his girlfriend's friend was having or some, something to that effect. And I was so nervous. But his older brother, my cousin Mike, ended up equipping us with six tall boy Olympia beers, a big magnum of red baby duck wine, and a, and a, and a little uh, Mickey of, of white rum. Just enough to like get two 15-year-olds absolutely obliterated out of their minds. But I took down that drink, and I flew. I was like, holy shit. I'll go to this party, no problem. I'm in. I remember riding on the bus and the lights flash. I can remember it as day, lights flashing. I was like, I was just in heaven. I was ready to go. And I, I'll never forget the euphoria that that gave me and the, the feelings of anxiety and insecurity that went away when I drank it. All that nervousness all that energy that was in me every day being li literally walking around nervous was gone when I drank. So I started, you know, finding the liquor, <clears throat> liquor cabinet, you know, raiding it. Um, dad, dad drank in the house uh, on the weekends and he would let me have a couple because he was functioning alcoholic. That, that was the, the, the nice thing to do, I guess. Back then in Ontario, the drinking age had just moved to 18 to 19. So, you know, in my teens, I was cutting school, you know, getting people to buy a drink. And then, you know, my sister, who was only a year younger, could look 18 or 19 in a minute with a bit of makeup on. So we'd get her going. And I started to drink pretty much every day in my teens to assuage these, these feelings of anxiety. And not realizing that really, what I was doing was just stuffing down all these childhood experiences and these, you know, again, no big traumas. I didn't have any, I wasn't abused. I wasn't, I had these little small teens that I realized, you know, much, much later added up. So cut to 18, 18 or so. And uh, my family was going on a big trip to Montreal for a big event. And my dad, Knew the drinking age in Montreal was 18, so thought, whoa, 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 he used to go to Montreal every month to do business. 
this is my time to turn uh, show my son the town. And my friend was coming along with me and he asked, my, my dad actually asked me, he said, can Neil, my buddy, can he get a fake ID? Now back then, no fake IDs was no problem. I said, yeah, sure. So there we are, my, my dad, my, my, myself, my friend and my little brother on the car, on the car going a day in advance to Montreal ahead of the rest of the family to this big event so that dad could do a little business but also spend the night before taking his eldest son and his friend out. In fact, dad was so, when, dad, when, when we drove to Montreal, my friend got into the car and dad asked him if he had the fake ID and took a look at it. And the name on the ID was Paul, even though my friend's name was Neil. And dad called him Paul all the rest in the way in the car to Montreal, I think just to you know, make sure he didn't make any mistakes. Anyway, this is, this, I, 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 we drank ourselves under the table. I watched my father as a high-functioning alcoholic in full bloom. He let he let everything out that night. Everything everything that he was, you know, maybe keeping under the surface and under the table. He was a binge drinker. It just it, it just bloomed right in front of my eyes, and I went, "Oh my God, my dad is a massive alcoholic." And then I like started to think about my own habits right then and there, and. Uh, I was, I was really sneaking around, you know, uh, a lot. I was learning to lie a lot. You know, my parents didn't ask a lot of questions back then. They were of the parents that kind of, but I proceeded to write off. I was drinking and driving. I rode off a couple of cars. And I think because of my dad's active alcoholism, he didn't come down as hard on me as a, a parent who would have seen this behavior as, and dad also had, skeletons in his closet that to this day we don't know all the we don't know all the answers to there's this i i don't know if anyone got hurt but i'm pretty sure there was an accident where that may have happened but we don't know my point is i guess that dad you know dealt with me with a soft hand and so i felt like i i you know i really was getting away with things and this this did not create a this, this created a, a kind of a drinking a blueprint for me of how I could operate going forward. So I got into college years and um, got really serious. I, I was cutting a lot of school in high school. I learned to forge my mother's signature. I was absentee, happy, you know, so many days just drinking and partying. By the time I got to college, I decided I was going to get serious. And I found a career tailor-made for an alcoholic. Now, I really did want to be in this career. I wanted to be either a radio DJ or a weatherman, but I ended up in advertising production. Advertising. In 1983, where the booze and the cocaine was everywhere. Everywhere. And, you know, I'm in my 20s, very early 20s, and I'm I'm just, you know, running, running with the pack, you know, but I have all this training now. I've got all these, this past, I've got this training as a teenage, you know, alcoholic and my father's, you know, high functioning the way he would plan to drink. I mean, that experience in Montreal, let me tell you, he got up the next morning and went to work and did business. And I couldn't get out of bed that next. He was a very, he showed me how to do it, basically. And so I proceeded to do it in my 20s and 30s as an advertising executive. 
And, uh, you know, I got a DUI within a year. I was arrested. Um, got away with that. Uh, I did have my license, but this is again, the early eighties. And, you know, the only was, I was never put in jail. I was never, uh, I was, I was, you know, uh, suspended, but I wasn't, you know, but I had a very, I had great success in my career. Uh, I, I was able to really make a good go of it in advertising and production. By the time I was 25 years old, I was already the executive producer and getting married. And, uh, you know, before, you, you know, the people I was running with in advertising, you know, I used to joke, you couldn't tell an addict or a drunk in a police lineup. We all looked like addicts and drunks in those days in my 20s. I mean, really, who would, who would be able to know one from the other? But by the time you're in your early, you know, late 20s, early 30s, my friends were starting to get married. All of a sudden, I realized that people weren't drinking the same way as I was drinking or wanted to drink. That's, you know, and now I had to be a little more calculated, I guess, about this. I was good, as I said, I, I did get married at a young age. Uh, and it, it really became a new era of when I was going to plan to drink. Um, I did stop the cocaine at that point, which was good. It was never my drug of choice, but I, you know, anyone, any one of us that has ever dabbled in that drug knows that that can combine with booze and that can, that can run a night into the wee hours of the next day. And, uh, I'm glad I gave that up. And that was at the behest of my, you know, my first wife, but <clears throat> over the next years, I continued on in this very high functioning, highly successful career managing a few companies. By the time I was 12 years later, I was, you know, I had three kids, three companies. I was running, I was living north of the city of Toronto in a house uh, where the kids and my first wife were and their mom. And I had a condominium in the city of Toronto where, which was convenient for a binge drinking, high functioning alcoholic. I was an exec, so my job was to take clients out, get work. I was business development. I ran companies, so I had to go find work. Well, where do you find work? Well, you take them to strip joints, you take them to bars, you take them to, you know, all kinds of, you know, I, I spent years traveling on big trips, you know, in advertising, you'd shoot around the world. Again, um, at home, when I was at home, I was planning these, I used to plan these three days of the week. Industry night was Thursday night. I'd be at my condo, I'd be blind drunk. I'd just pour myself home. I had my exit strategy, you know. I would, I would just disappear. People knew, oh, William's gone, you know. Friday and Saturday night, I would get home. I knew my, my wife would be tired from raising the kids all week. And I'd go out with the, the boys I had locally. I had a cab account. The cab would take me to the bar. I'd drink till I was blind drunk and passed out on the bar. I would be poured home, I would be taken home, blacked out most times. And uh, some days I, most days I would get into the house, some days I wouldn't, and I'd just be on the porch the next morning. Um, but I was still able to somehow keep everything, all the balls in the air. By this time during these years, my dad had been kicked to the curb for six months by my mother. Just as a, as a, she never kept him out, but he was really struggling. And uh, it was kind of a 
shot across the bow. It was a, a wake up call to me. I knew what I was doing and I wasn't afraid to, I, I was not in my heart of hearts. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew that's the way I was behaving. I had a, you know, my, my uncle by that point the, uh, had died, uh, you know, in the early nineties of not directly from alcoholism, but certainly from his alcoholic lifestyle. My dad was struggling and I got to a point in my life where I was starting to sneak a lot of booze to family functions and hide it, even though I was trying to be as sneakly, sneaky as possible. You know, when you, when you start sneaking booze into the, the spare room or into a closet or into a bathroom of a Christmas dinner where your kids are there and you go and guzzle, you know, $150 bottle of wine because you were saving that so that, because it would taste so good. Meanwhile, I'm blind drunk. I'm getting... You know, I'm just fueling the fire. I like I had no idea how at this point. I, well, I did. I, I I knew I was I was I was drinking to excess when I drank, and I decided to in January first of two thousand and one to do a dry January. I'd done it once before, so I just decided I was going to do a dry January and try not to drink. That that particular Christmas had been really bad. Uh, and I drank way more than I used to around the family. And I knew I was playing with fire. Somehow I'd kept these companies going and I kept, and I'd gotten away with some very uh, close calls. But uh, I knew something bad was on the horizon. So I, I decided to take a dry January, another one, and I just happened to have a physical that, that January. Uh, planned. Usually it's around my birthday in the spring, but I went to the doctor. It was the January 4th and I decided on the way to the doctor, you know, I think I'm going to tell Dr. Ken, I'm going to be truthful when he asks me how much I drank. You know, they always ask you how many bars. I told him and he looked at me and I said, yeah, it's a lot. And he said something like, well, you ever thought of wanting to talk to somebody about that? I said, well, I haven't thought about it, but maybe. He said, well, if you want a name, I've got, there's a, there's a rehab center nearby. I could give you the name of somebody to call or what have you. So I took the name. I didn't think much of it at the, that minute, but a day or two later, I decided to call this place and just check it out. And I went there for Basically, you know, an intake of gr a group intake and assessment. It was very, very, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't checking myself into anything. I was just, it was almost like a, uh, a recce or <clears throat> a reconnaissance mission just to see where I, I wanted to know where I lined up in this thing. Again, not afraid to admit I was acting out, you know, as an alcoholic because I, I knew what that was by that point. Anyway. You know, they give you the assessment test, they run a video, they go out, they come back, they, you know, there were about six or seven of us in this intake and they, they started putting numbers on the board as to, you know, where you rated. And I was like second from the top, you know, could use outpatient treatment or something to that effect. So I basically approached the spell after the meeting and I said, you know, I, well, here's where I scored and I want to know more about this outpatient treatment. And I volunteered myself to take outpatient treatment from this actually same counselor i went about a half dozen times but you know at that point i said very clearly this is 2001 i do not want any god touting 
God, you know, pushing 12 step anything. All I knew about any 12 step program in my, to my, that, that point, all I knew was that what I'd seen on television, I suppose, or what I'd heard and I figured it was not for me because by this point I had successfully, you know, recovered from my Catholicism. I was a card carrying, almost Nazi atheist um, at this point, uh, intolerant, judgmental, um, not healthy, but I was on a mission, not from God, to uh, stay as clear as possible from anything that was theistic or, you know, was going to give, a, you know, be a part of any anthropomorphized deities. I wasn't going to be near it. So this is where my dry drunk years began. And I, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that, other than to say that they were the worst years of my life. You know, I thought I just had to give up drinking. So I think in my mind, in my mind, I thought I'd solved it. Case closed, right? Done. I did it. And I almost think I did it out of spite of my dad. In fact, my dad's, dad's got cancer and it's really bad. And I think I'm going through a lot of uh, circle of life stuff right now. My mom passed and my dad. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about my dad, you know, this last little bit. And, um, you know, I tell a little bit about the story up the front, but, you know, really, I think I, you know, he couldn't quit. He couldn't, he was a slippery he kept slipping and sliding through his alcoholism. He quit for a bit. He was on in abuse. He tried everything, you know. Mom kicking to the curb. And I remember my mom's face when I gave up drinking. Just, just elated, you know. And it has been after a few years. But what they didn't know is how miserable I was. I was a fucking miserable. I was living this double life. I had a six-year on-again, off-again uh, affair with a client. I was making rash business decisions, sabotaging partnerships, relationships, familial. I was ha having crazy fits of rage, uncontrollable rage. I'd throw things, pieces of office equipment into my, in my office. Sometimes they stuck in the wall. This is the non-drinking human. I got kicked out of a golf cart by a client because I was so pissed off at the way I was playing. I mean, you're just talking about an out of control, dry drunk. And I didn't know what it was and I didn't know why I was so miserable. I did get a bit of a respite. Somehow in the late 06, early 07, I met my second wife and fell in love, was able to navigate my way out of my first relationship with my first wife navigate my way out of that relationship with my client successfully had a couple two three years of the honeymoon of being in a new relationship where it gave me some relief from all the anxieties and all the things i was dealing with but and the misery and the and the rage but you know that was only a temporary relief unfortunately a few years later by 20 i got married remarried in 08 by 2012 my dry drunk rage was in full, full blow. I was uh, explosive and emotionally abusive to my second wife. 
And by this time, my kids were now of age. They were in their early to mid-teens. So when I quit drinking around 2000, my kids were little. They never saw me drink. But boy, did they see me rage. And I'm, fuck, I am so, I, 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 I can't regret it. But man, I do regret it. Of course I regret it. I, I can't change it. I, I just have to live with the, the damage I did in those years. Um, I was a bully. My, my, my ex and I had a good relationship parent-wise. So, you know, I had a key to the house and it was very generous breakup and all that and relationship and whatever. But the kids, I was a parachute father and I was bullying them into things that I thought that they needed to do. And anyway, they witnessed firsthand my, my years of uh, emotional tumult and the rage that I afflicted. And then I, I remember years later them telling me, oh my God, if we showed up at a restaurant, you dropped us off at the restaurant and went to park the car and we got there and it was closed knowing you were walking to the restaurant, they would just be in total fear of my reaction. My employees would just duck for cover sometimes when I come into the office if they saw a particular expression. Anyway, fast forward. Um, I was in now by cognitive behavioral therapy. I was taking impulsivity drugs. I was uh, in marriage counseling. And in the early part of 2015, I don't even know where she found it. I know why she did it. But my second wife ended up doing a lot of research about AA. I think she'd had a conversation with my dear friend, Eric, who's in Cincinnati. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, okay. I, by this time, I had a connection in Cincinnati. We bought a place in Cincinnati in 2013. I started to meet some of her friends. I'd met them on occasion, but we were living in Toronto and Cincinnati. So she had conferred with somebody that was in the program, a friend of ours, and asked him, does AA take atheists and agnostics? And he said, yeah, take everybody. So she wrote me about a three-page letter outlining where we were at, State of the Union. And it was, it was, it was a love letter, you know, really, in, in, in hindsight, it was a love letter. And at the end of it, just asked to check out AA. At that point, I was like, I'll do anything because I'm just trying to save a marriage. And I called up a, a friend of mine who was in Toronto at the time, and he was in NA and AA. And I knew he was active in it and asked him to take me to uh, a and he put a huge meeting for at this, I don't even remember the name of it. It was an open meeting. It was, oh my God, it was big. And it was a big meeting. And they, they it was so big, they had a, like a, they had a newcomer's room. And I went in there and didn't know what the surrender, but heard them say this prayer and at the beginning and sat around. It was a big circle and heard all these people started to share just a little bit, two minutes. They just literally went around this big circle, one chair at a time. And my buddy turns over and he says, you don't have to say anything. You know, you, don't have, you just can listen and just say, I passed. But most everybody said something. And I was like, holy shit. Like, like I could feel the, I could feel the synergy. I start feeling that 
they were saying shit that was in my head that that I was feeling. I could I could just in all those years of cognitive behavioral therapy and the marriage counseling, this professional to peer thing, the the impulsivity drugs, nothing had stuck. You know, it was just not it was not resonating. But here are these bunch of strangers sitting in a room on these fold-up chairs in the basement of their church, and they're saying shit that their own experience of what they've been going through. And I'm like, holy fuck. What, what is going on here? Anyway, it really left a mark. I was intrigued. My, my wife at the time was in Cincinnati. She flew back in town. I told her I'd gone, but she drove in. And I said, there was an open meeting next. I said, I want you to, I was intrigued. I was, I was, I was intrigued enough to go back and I took her, I wanted her to know I was serious, but I also wanted to convince myself that there was something there. I needed, I, it's almost like I needed a validate, I needed a witness or something. Anyway, um, it was even more impressive. There was a woman who gave a lead. Oh my God, it was a giant, it was like at the upper level of this same church, it was a whole lot, like, and just an awesome lead. And I, uh, I remember thinking, I, I, got, I got to do this. There's something here. I don't know what it is, but I got to do it. Um, I couldn't, I don't think I could believe at that point that I'd really discounted it. You know, I guess my intolerance and judgmental nature and so forth and these fit, this fear, this guttural fear that I had that I now had, it kept me, you know, the old contempt before investigation, as it says in the, in the book. Um, but I, I did continue to go and somehow, some way, believe it or not, in the first month of my recovery. So I consider my sobriety date 010101. I consider my recovery date 021550. Because I was sober and I've been sober and I really have been sober for almost 22 years. But I've only been in recovery for seven and a half. And I'll tell anybody there's a huge difference between the two who wants to listen to this story and so i i somehow stumbled into a meeting in downtown toronto on the second floor of the oise building in march of 2015 and this long-haired hippie gray-haired hippie is chairing this meeting named joe and i didn't know i was going to a secular meeting no idea but there it was i stumbled into secular aa so I went to a couple more meetings there at the Beyond Belief Toronto group. I bought Joe's book. It was right there. It was just been published that year. And I started to read that. And I remember sitting down with him, having a coffee after the meeting and asking him about this thing called sponsorship. And he said, well, you're moving. Uh, that year I was moving to Cincinnati full time. He said, happy to. But maybe when you get to Cincinnati, you want to find a meeting or a group there. And, and maybe there'll be somebody there. But if you don't, I'm happy to. Happy to be that person. Anyway, I did go to Cincinnati. I did find now in Cincinnati, it's it's a very traditional town. It's a very uh, it's it's I don't think it's the belt. It's not the buckle of the Bible Belt, but we're a couple of holes away. It's a very conservative conservative town, um, right on the you know right on the border, the Ohio border. A lot of Southern influence, and we there was no secular meetings there. I did find again stumble, lucky accident. My traditional home group, I still co-host that meeting every Tuesday night in Cincinnati. Uh, I, I found a meeting that was tolerant. I, I said, I, I went in right away. I said, I'm an agnostic. 
atheist. I hope that's okay with y'all because if it's not, I'll go somewhere else. I was not afraid to, at this point, realize what I needed. And they were very loving toward me and uh, accepted me. And I, I started going to meetings there. But I got to say that it was still a slow trajectory in those early years. You know, maybe because I was in traditional AA and I, and I was just trying to, I got a sponsor. Real great guy, Mike. But he was a, he was a big book guy. And that was fine. He knew where I came from and he, and he, and he was, his, he did his best and he did good. You know, I, I did okay with Mike. Step one and two, I got through and, you know, I, got, I, I understood about getting honest. And again, I said, I, I wasn't afraid to, I wasn't afraid to say I was an alcoholic, but admitting my life was unmanageable and figuring out why that was a whole other thing. But I got honest about that. I mean, I, I'd seen enough. I'd seen my daughter come up to me at one point and I was married to my second wife and say, you can't treat her like that. Now, when your daughter, you know, dresses you down about your, how are you treating your, their stepmother, you know, you know, your life's unmanageable at this point. Anyway, step one on being open to influence. See, I was so afraid of my whole life. I tried to control and manipulate and, and deal with every unexpected consequence of everything i my expectations were so rigid and high that i i tried to manipulate everything not to, as, as a power over move although it was self-serving and self you know self-centered it was just to try and again assuage feelings of insecurity so being open to influence i used to do things unilaterally that's why i fucked up marriages and that's why i fucked up uh, business relationships because i would just bust move i would make moves and then beg for forgiveness because I didn't want to take influence, but I needed in step two, I needed to, and I, and I and now felt, found these people that had this experience that I'd related to right from the get go. And I thought, okay, well, they seem to have some experience that I, I can relate to. So maybe I'll take some influence from them. Step three, on the other hand, in a traditional meeting with a big book guy took some time. I'll be honest. I had to do some mental acrobatics around that one. But again, Mike was very patient with me. And I just said, look, I feel like I feel like I was born. I have an inner self sense of myself. I don't believe in something outside of myself. I believe in there's an inner energy or something spiritual inside of myself. And I can draw from that's all I know. Um, I, I, I love this, these groups and this fellowship. And I, I decided I was just going to be willing to do the work and listen to some instruction and some suggestions. And that would be as much as I'd give over to anything. Um, step four was a real epiphany. Step four and five, uh, I felt like doing that inventory for myself and finding out all those triggers I talked about at the beginning, really going back about these insecurities and fears, resentments I'd held. Uh, that was one of the greatest exercises I've ever done in my life. It was a fact-finding mission for me. Um, and I realized when I did it and I did my step five and I told, you know, Mike this, I realized that it wasn't something that I was going to be done with, you know, that I was going to get any kind of uh, merit badge for, that I, it was something that I was going to have to continue looking into, that this was something that was, I was on an ongoing, ongoing path. Um, I, uh, in 15, I started reading every morning it was Joe's book that I started with. And in 16, I started a meditative practice. And at 17, I took a big 
time out. My, my, even though I'd gotten into AA to try and save a marriage, it wasn't working. And I took a big six month sabbatical and I went on the road. I bought a used RV and decided I had to hit the road. I took a break from work. And when I came back, oh, I hit a lot of meetings, by the way. That was when the trajectory of my program really went a little bit more into overdrive because I realized I could take my AA anywhere I went. Wasn't, you know, I knew it was in Toronto and Cincinnati, but now I was traveling all around North America and hitting these meetings and finding all this same association of fellowship and love and acceptance. And I was, I was really overwhelmed by that. Um, when I came back, my ex and I gave it our best, but realized that I it really wasn't in our mutual best interest to continue the relationship. I didn't go back to work full time at that point. A good friend of mine and a partner had been killed. And it was a real, on his bike in an instant, it was a real wake up call for me um, that life was really, 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 really short. And that I needed to, you know, find that, you know, meaning of life as Frankel writes about what, what, what was my life of meaning really gonna look like? Um, I, 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 started, I started doing things I never thought I'd do. You know, honestly, I started uh, doing some part-time consulting. I got my fitness certification so I could do that part-time. Um, I ended up being a registered yogi. Um, I was an, an itinerant, I started traveling. I, was a, I could be alone, but not lonely. You know, this is something that was really new to me too, because I, you know, spent so many years in relationships. I was a serial relationship guy. Went from one marriage to the next. Um, but through working this program and, and being around people, I, I learned to be okay with myself. And, you know, find some humility for the first time in my life, real humid humility where I thought of myself less without thinking less of myself as <clears throat> my sponsor likes to say. And that was a real lesson for me because I needed a, I developed a new, a new plan. You know, I learned in my wellness training about, you know, <clears throat> the, um, the part of the brain, the reptilian part of the brain that keeps habits and makes it difficult for us to change. It's the black, uh, I'll think of the name in a second, but it's a really strong urge to hang on to habits that we've created and you can't erase habits, you have to replace them. You know, that's my learning in, and so when I, when I, when I teach people in wellness, I was, I was talking to them about replacing their food habits, their sleeping habits, their hydration habits. Well, I need to replace my behavioral habits. And so I got up in the morning and I started reading and I, and I meditated. And then I started journaling every day. Five and a half years ago, it was like my step 10. And when I journal, I first write down the things that I did, did good. You know, I, I, I build myself up a little bit because most of my day, 90% of it, I'm living a good life. Yeah, 10% of it, I can be a dick. But at least I know what being a dick looks like now and what I can do to, you know, correct my dickness. I, uh, I, I really have learned that I, 
I can identify these triggers from yesteryear and, um, and write, my, write my behavior, you know, and create a little bit of a pause before I react or catastrophize or have un, unrealistic expectations about things. Um, and I think, you know, creating these rituals, these habits every day, reaching out. The fourth part I do, I, so I read, I reflect, I write, and then I reach out. And I reach out every day to at least one or two alcoholics directly that I'm either working with or I'm a running mate of or Are you okay for me to finish up then? Megan, are you okay for me to finish up? Sorry, I heard the recording. I guess you are. Yes, I can't unmute. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. No, so I was just, you know, I was just kind of getting towards the end of it. But, you know, that, you know, the, I needed to get into a practice of recovery. And that practice included this getting up and reading. I read the Stoics. Reflections from the Stoics. I still read Josie's book after seven years. Uh, I'm uh, I'm pleased to say that you know after many years with not many about three years with my first sponsor Mike, you know we just kind of drifted and uh, Joe's now my you know my my official sponsor although we like the word mentor or whatever but um, I read the book I reflect I meditate every day a great practice for me um, honestly. I can't say enough about meditation and what it's given me just to slow down. Like sobriety is a, is a word I sometimes will say, because, you know, as somebody that was an overcompensating fast action, get done quick fix before anything else can happen, unilateral decision-making person being able to, um, to take a pause and uh, take a breath and uh, center myself was important. Again, I, I have to work at that every day. Um, and then reaching out, that's the part I was getting to before the recording stopped and reaching out to a couple of alcoholics that I might be um, working with or running with um, through Facebook. I did found a group in Cincinnati, Beyond Belief Cincinnati. Uh, Zoom has changed everything in, in recovery, in my opinion. Um, it, it has connected me to people like this meeting and others that I never would have imagined in recovery. Um, my even my my little traditional group in Cincinnati went to Zoom a couple of weeks after, and I was able after having moved away from there, connect with them, reconnect with Joe. Of course, I was now living in British Columbia. I reconnected with Joe. I became active, much more active in service. Uh, I started doing co-hosting and and sharing of meetings in Toronto, in um, in Cincinnati, and uh, in in Tulsa, and then I founded a group, uh, before that I founded a group in Cincinnati because there was still no secular meeting. We're still the only secular meeting in all of the greater Cincinnati tri-state area. I got connected to the um, inner group there. I really believe in being an ambassador for secular AA. I wanted to work within somehow, some way within the confines of the AA structure. You know, the institutions and the jails and the, and the courts, uh, AA is still the, uh, the place where newcomers and new people who are in trouble are sent to. I think it's important that secular AA have a voice in there so that they know if they get in there and they've got questions or, you know, I read a statistic not too long ago, 49% of those born after the year 
uh, are born between 1980 and 2000 are a-religious. So if you're 20 to 40 years of age and you're walking into an AA meeting or being uh, <clears throat> ordered by the judge to go to a meeting and you get in there, you might go there for the number of times that you need to get confirmation for your attendance, but you might not go back if you hear, you know, so I really wanted, I really wanted to have a meeting where I could contribute to being an ambassador for AA. And since Cincinnati didn't have a secular meeting, I started one. It's going pretty good after a year and a half. You know, we have a Facebook page with over 100 people on it. We usually get about 30 people every week to our meeting. And I've, I've really, you know, I, I really have developed some really close relationships with these people. But more than anything, I just want to try to be somebody that opens the gateway as wide as it can be for newcomers. The people that scratch their heads going, I'm not sure about this fucking thing. I mean, is it all, do you talk like this all the time? Um, because I don't know if I can hang out with all these God touting, you know, and I just, I'm the guy in the traditional meeting that puts up his hand and goes, you got any, if, if this isn't sticking, let's have a little talk afterwards. Cause you know, I'll send you a link to some meetings that may, may, uh, may work better for you. And, um, I've enjoyed being that person, uh, and having meaning and purpose and, Yesterday in the Ixa, I don't know if any of you were in Ixa. Well, I see Mary C here. I know Megan was. I know Margarita was. Uh, the Ixa conference this weekend, you know, once again, was just amazing. And I, um, you know, I was listening to Joe at the last meeting of the day talk about chime and connectedness and having hope and an identity and uh, meaning and empowerment. And I, and I really do feel empowered by this whole program, the meaning and purpose that I find in life now to carry a message is the greatest I've ever had in any, and I've, as I said, I had a lot of success in business. I've had successful raising my children, but this is a transformational thing I'm in. I have, I have the ability, everything in business was transactional. Having relationships with other humans, like my, my love of my life, who happens to be in this meeting, in, in life and in recovery, my children, um, my family and those in, in this program, those are transformational relationships. Business is transactional. And when you can be in relationships with that, to me, that's the only, that is, that is the only value. There's everything else in life has really doesn't mean much to me. The, the value in those relationships is everything. And, uh, and that wouldn't have happened if I continued on my path as a dry drunk or as an active alcoholic. And so I can only thank this crazy program for uh, giving me some sort of a lodestar and a bunch of people that were following that same guide to follow along. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Thanks.